This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. Thank you very much. Uh, I wish my dear departed mother was alive to hear that elaborate introduction, but thank you very much. How much of you enjoy, how many of you enjoy being in dermatology or appreciate dermatology? Yay. <clears throat> well, I have been for almost 35 years now, and it's been more fun than ever and more satisfying than ever the last 10 years since we've been able to put together a team of, of, of Derm PAs with our practice. So I just want to applaud you and applaud this organization for what you're doing. So we're going to talk about basal and squamous cell carcinoma. As you know, the non-melanoma skin cancers are the most common cancer in the world. Let's see here. Um, these are the might, potential conflicts of interest I might have with uh, various companies that I consult with. Um, there was a disturbing article in The Lancet a couple years ago that said that targeted therapies are generally not curative or even enduringly effective in some of these things that, like basal cell and, and SCCIS and AK probably should be just uh, um, termed as indolent lesions of epithelial origin. Well, that's okay if they stay on the surface, but if they start invading and acting like many of the uh, tumors that you've seen recently. Basal cell carcinoma is the most common cancer in the world, uh, and uh, it's much higher than is reported, anywhere in, in the range of uh, over two to three million uh, basal cell carcinomas per year are reported. Um, uh, the, uh, how are you gonna predict some of the high-risk basal cell carcinomas? Because we know the vast majority of them can be treated relatively easily with a variety of modalities, like desiccation, curatage, simple excision, and the more advanced ones, of course, most surgery. Well, there are two major risk factors that we need to think about. The clinical factors, or what we observe, and then histologic factors. And you really now should be getting a decent report from your pathologist, not just saying basal cell carcinoma. It should give the histologic type, and the depth, and the appearance of it. Other factors include the size of the tumor, the bigger tumors are greater at risk, how deep they invade, if they're just on the surface, like a superficial basal cell carcinoma, or if they extend down into the fat, where it's located. We know about these central areas of the face and so forth, where it's more likely. If a lesion has recurred, it's much more likely to be aggressive uh, type of tumor, and so I don't recommend treating a, a basal cell or squamous cell in the same manner. So if it's, if it's recurred after EDNC, then go to another modality, such as excision. Um, if they've had prior radiation, and we still see some patients that had radiation for acne or radiation for other things, then much more oral treatment in the other area, perhaps, uh, then it's more likely to. If it goes through uh, the fascia, through into the fat, or through an uh, uh, anatomic area, it's much more likely to be. So uh, just rules of thumb, more than a centimeter in the face, greater than two centimeters and over other areas are more likely to be uh, troublesome basal cells. If it goes to the fascia or involving muscle, obviously, into the perichondrium or periosteum, much more aggressive tumors. So we talk about the H zone, I'll show you a diagram, you're all familiar with that, but also any areas of limited tissue, such as the eyelids, the nose, and the ears, are more difficult to manage. And this is the areas of higher risk, what was that periorbital area, the mid-face, temples, preauricular area, and certain areas of the scalp tend to be, behave much more aggressively. So um, recurrent tumors, if they've been multiply recurrent, then they're more likely they really have much way more of a nasty type tumor. And also, if you see a recurrent tumor, you have to assume that the scar is also involved. So just don't treat the edge that appears to have recurred, try to excise uh, the scar uh, with it uh, whenever you can. So uh, just a quick question, uh, what are the risk factors uh, for basal cell carcinoma? Got it all right, excellent. So um, there's another drug that uh, I'm sorry, this is uh, out of sequence for some reason or another. Uh, capsidabine, you're all gonna get this right because it's a, it's a given answer. Something out of sequence, so.
So capsidabine is something that we use on patients with aggressive squamous cell carcinoma. It is uh, uh, converted to a prodrug. Uh, it's not useful for, uh, it is very useful for transplant patients. That's where we use it the most. And the side effects may be uh, nausea and renal impairment. So it's a problem if you have a transplant patient, renal transplant patient, uh, that we would want to not deal with it. Um, well, I don't know how these questions got all out of sequence. Can we, any way we can introduce these after this section? They're out, they're out, of, they're out of sequence. They get put out of sequence. We're going to talk about photodynamic therapy. You heard about it in some of the presentations earlier today. And uh, uh, it's not indicated for invasive squamous cell carcinoma, which is uh, the correct answer, um, because uh, um, the invasive ones really don't respond well to photodynamic therapy. Okay, thank you for, see if you can relocate that if you could. Uh, squamous cell carcinoma has really been the bane of my existence as a Mohs surgeon, particularly the last 10 years with more and more organ transplant patients. Uh, re responds really to, or accounts for basically two to uh, over 5,000 deaths annually in this country and that number keeps going up with more and more immunosuppressed patients. And if you have metastasis, really the five-year survival is really very, very, very poor. Um, in fact, I think I've had more nasty squames and deaths from squames in the last few years in these transplant patients than I've had from melanoma patients. So the higher risk squamous cell carcinomas, uh, if the tumor uh, is larger in size, as we talked about with basal cell carcinoma, uh, if the depth uh, the, is a Breslow uh, greater than uh, two millimeters, uh, if there's ulceration, and certain areas like the ear, the lip, uh, anogenital areas, and those that are poorly differentiated. Um, and if there's any perineural invasion, which we talked about earlier, um, these are very def definite risk factors and patients need to be followed and managed more aggressively. So other risk factors, as we saw with basal cell carcinoma, are recurrent tumors. Those immunosuppressed patients, not just the transplant patients, but like the CLL patient I talked to you about earlier, um, and other diseases that where they may be uh, use immunosuppression uh, or have HIV or X-ray therapy. Similar areas of uh, more uh, aggressive tumors, uh, that H area uh, corresponds to what we talked about uh, for basal cell carcinoma. So you also have to look when you're examining patients uh, that have had, have or have had a squamous cell carcinoma to see if it's any fixed at all. If there's tender, it's more likely to, uh, that it's a more aggressive tumor or could have some perineural involvement. Also look for satellite lesions and always palpate for nodes every visit, every time a patient comes in and they've had not just a little in situ squame, but they've had a significant squame, check the uh, regional nodes in that area. And I usually, if I suspect a squamous cell carcinoma, I will, uh, before I even do a biopsy, I'll just check, check regional nodes on those patients. And you also uh, review the history as you would with a melanoma patient each visit um, and look also, and you take initial history if they've had burns or they've had other uh, syndromes of any sort or if they've had uh, x-ray therapy. And some of them may forget about it. I've had patients that have had x-ray treatment for breast cancer uh, and, and didn't even mention it, but you see the tattoos where they were being treated. So uh, another hot topic is uh, sentinel node biopsy or not, adjuvant x-ray therapy or not. Um, it's a kind of a muddy area right now, uh, and adjuvant x-ray therapy data are mixed, but certainly for the kind of tumors that we talked about this morning, uh, the, where there's perineural invasion, the more aggressive tumors, or if they have um, uh, immunosuppression, you may want to think about that, or if they've had like those nerves that are larger than 0.1 millimeter involved. And now they're doing staging now to stage squamous cell carcinomas, and I think that's worthwhile doing too, that to combine those factors of ulceration, uh, the tumor type, whether it's poorly differentiated, uh, the location, perineural invasion. So uh, sentinel node may actually matter more in patients that uh, uh, have squamous cell carcinoma, because unlike uh, um, melanoma, x-ray therapy to that field uh, may be curative. So that's certainly the standard of treatment now for many squamous cell carcinomas, the oropharyngeal squamous cell carcinomas. Typically, they'll do a combination therapy where they'll do uh, chemo, radiation, uh, or excision, and chemo, and radiation, the three of those. So um, 
And it, it's difficult to, uh, to, to manage these, especially patients that have, have lymphoma, as I mentioned, difficult to evaluate, evaluate those. And uh, it's less useful for scalp lesion because figuring out really where the uh, sentinel node is, is is much harder to assess. So retinoids can be used. Some of those cases we saw this morning, it might be appropriate to think about putting them on a retinoid because this is really the best or the most widely studied chemopreventive measure for squamous cell carcinoma in transplant patients. And it decreases the AKs they get, warts and keratosis. And it really uh, has an effect on pro-differentiation, pro-apoptotic uh, effects. It aims to upregulate uh, UP53 uh, and also increase Langerhans cells in the skin. Now, it doesn't cure, all it does is suppress it. But you see, we all see these patients that start getting galloping numbers of squamous cell carcinomas that are immunosuppressed. And if they're not able to reduce the suppressive drugs, you may want to consider uh, uh, treating them with a retinoid. You, kind of, of course, want to work with their, with their transplant uh, uh, team to, to deal with that. And the dose. Uh, it's similar to what we'd use for psoriasis, um, acetretin, 0.5 uh, to 1 milligram per kilogram per day. And then you also need to uh, evaluate and follow them like you would with lipids and treat them as you would with an isotretinoin patient with emollients, good skin care, and monitor the usual side effects you would see with, with isotretinoin as well. Now, cabcitabine uh, is uh, the drug that we already answered the questions on, but it's a prodrug that's converted to 5-FU in the body, and it's really very helpful for certain squamous cell carcinomas, especially those that are developing multiple squamous cell carcinomas. So thinking about using a retinoid, thinking about using cabcitabine is, is helpful. Cetixumab is another uh, drug. It actually is an uh, epidermal growth factor inhibitor, and it may have an adjuvant role, so you may need to, you know, you talk to your oncologist along with this and your transplant doctor if you're seeing some of these patients that are really progressing. Now, one of the things we've tried to do on these transplant patients, and, and a uh, PA in my practice kind of spearheaded this, met with a transplant team, and we have sent sessions educating them about uh, skin cancer. Those that are on the transplant list, we're trying to get them in for a full body examination. Uh, maybe treat uh, precancerous lesions, maybe treat AKs they might have, get them on a good sun safety regimen. So I think we can play a major role in this, not just in treating them, but also trying to prevent some of these lesions and then help educate them on early detection, early treatment. So what are some of the medical treatments for non-melanoma skin cancer besides the one we mentioned? Well, topical ALA PDT has been used for quite some time, and MALPDT in Europe uh, to treat uh, AKs and Bowen's disease, or squamous in situ, um, on patients. And it's particularly useful on transplant patients that have some large lesional areas, and we're using this quite a bit in our practice now. A number of studies have showed you can decrease the number of new squames by anywhere from 75 to 95%, um, and it, by doing cyclic PDT. Typically, I'll do maybe two treatments and then repeat them in six months, but sometimes you have to move on to other areas off-label, like on the extremities. So this is just an example of, uh, from a study from Apollo showing uh, the patients, the incidence of squamous cell carcinoma steadily decreased uh, um, uh, on the untreated patients and doing uh, two treatments in six months. You can see the difference uh, in the lower part of the... Uh, um, let's see if we can get to... Yeah, I'm not getting it. But you can see it's six months, a dramatic decrease. However, if you stop doing the cyclic treatments, they progressively uh, uh, continue to increase. Uh, also, patients with Gorlin syndrome, or nevoid-based cell carcinoma, uh, a number of studies have shown a, a dramatic decrease in the number of new basal cell carcinomas, just as we talked about in treating the patients with uh, uh, vismodegib. Uh, these patients that I've treated sometimes really dramatically decrease the numbers that they get. I've treated them on the head and neck, scalp, trunk, uh, with some cyclic uh, PDT, and that's quite, quite useful. Also with some durable responses in this study, six years, and I've seen it for longer than that in my practice. So the literature makes it clear that, that really uh, it's probably useful for uh, basal cell carcinoma, uh, not the ingressive types, more like the small nodular and superficial base cell carcinoma. Squamous cell and, car and carcinoma in situ only, but not at all for the invasive carcinoma because of the very high recurrence rate and the risk of deeper invasion. So 
PDT clearly is inferior to uh, surgical excision in most surgery for basal carcinoma, and the risk of metastatic disease limits it to use for uh, squamous cell carcinoma, and really should be utilized primarily for those that uh, uh, cannot go undergo uh, destructive methods or surgical excision. So talking a little bit more about PDT, we know that the 5-ALA is a precursor of uh, uh, protoporphyrin. It accumulates in the skin, in the abnormal skin cells, and does associate with some um, discomfort. Now the new kit on the block for PDT is a nanoparticle or uh, nanoemulsion of 10% uh, ALA that was developed in Europe, has been there for some time, has recently approved in this country by BioFrontera, the trade name is Amelouz. Uh, but the advantage of this is that this uh, drug penetrates much deeper. And uh, you can see on the left of the ALA uh, gel uh, penetrating much deeper. MAL, the methylaminic lavalanic acid, which is available in Europe, penetrates more than ordinary ALA that we have uh, available in this country prior to this new product. And this is activated, used uh, by, with the red light, and the red light has the advantage of penetrating deeper. So if you can get a drug that penetrates deeper and then you want to use a light that penetrates it a little deeper, putting these two together make this a more effective uh, modality. It's a different light source, it's a red light source. There are other light sources that you can use, Omnilux light, um, are, and other lights that produce the, the red wavelength can be used. Uh, and just some data on basal cell carcinoma really showed that a um, really in two studies a really dramatic uh, decrease in clearance of the, of the lesions uh, with the uh, ALA, this nano, nanoparticle ALA, and uh, also even for uh, basal cell carcinoma. When they do basal cell carcinoma, they do debride typically the elevated portion of it, like creating, uh, not to produce bleeding, then you put the medicine on and occlude it and then do the light. Now, it's not approved yet in this country, so if you do use it, it's off-label, and I'll show you some examples of that in a little bit. A good cosmetic result, and actually you can get good cosmetic results with our current ALA treatment, but also some of the other treatments uh, that we use, some of the topicals, 5-FU and so forth. Uh, if you get a brisk uh, response, it's almost like a, a light chemical pee on those patients. You do get cosmetic improvements. So the thickness of the lesion, the, the, the thicker they are, the, the less, less response. But in this study, it really still was, was pretty, pretty remarkable, I think. So again, cosmetic outcome, uh, quite good. Um, and in fact, uh, all the ALA treatments that really give pretty good cosmetic results, unlike they produce scarring, very rarely get any scarring uh, in the ALA uh, PDT treatment regimen. So this is highly efficacious for uh, AK. Uh, it seems to be even more efficacious. It's in that far as clearance in the 90% range. Both, a, both forms of ALA PDT are more effective uh, for AKs uh, than than the other modalities. The biggest advantage of PDT, in my experience though, is that you get 100% compliance, because you know they've been treated. All the other topicals except for uh, inginoma butate, or picado, uh, really oftentimes patients never do the full course of treatment. For example, the form, the 3.75% the um, amicumab, where it's two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on, I, I hardly ever have patients that complete that second two-week course of treatment. If they do the two weeks, it's very effective, but there's a problem of, of doing that. So talk a little bit about amicumab now uh, for squamous cell in situ. There have been a number of studies uh, showing that this is effective. Uh, you need to use it uh, three times a week, typically for six weeks or longer. Um, and if they have, they have to get a pretty brisk inflammatory response to show that it's effective. Uh, also, there was a report uh, by Ando where they had a patient that both tried 5-FU and amicumab for, for a squamous in situ on the finger, and what it used the two together had better results. So they may be synergistic in some form. We don't know whether the 5-FU perhaps uh, cranks up some cytokines that make the amicumab more effective. That's only, only speculation. But if you have a stubborn one in an area like in a finger or somewhere else, particularly an older patient where there may not be a great surgical candidate, you can consider uh, using those uh, two together. 
So how about a micromod for basal cell carcinoma? Well, it is approved in this country for treatment of superficial basal cell carcinoma, nothing more than that. And uh, one study, they had 89% remain clear for five years. A lot of these early reports on treatment of basal cell carcinoma, when they say, well, 12 months of clearance, it really is meaningless. You really need to have a longer-term follow-up. And all of Dr. Moe's data was five years plus out. That's how he got people's attention because this was a mode of treatment that a lot of people didn't understand or weren't really wild about. The old when they used to put a fixative paste on there and then and then slowly fix the tumor and remove it. Uh, but when he had overwhelming data of five-year uh, clearance rates, uh, that's what really made the difference. Also, we note with this modality that the thinner the lesions, the more effective it's going to be. It's not too surprising. You have less tumor to treat, less uh, area for you have to, to penetrate. So again, the most infl intense inflammatory reaction will give you the highest uh, tumor clearance rates. Um, so what are some of the disadvantages of micromod? Uh, they go along with other medical or topical treatments. You know, you can have some significant side effects with uh, when you're using a micromod this often and this longer duration. The erythema, crusting, and scabbing, and a fair number of them will get some flu-like symptoms, which demonstrates the systemic immune effect that it has. Very rare to get scarring, it can occur. It is uh, costly and you may not be able to get it approved uh, for use. It does take more time and you have to have a good compliant patient to do it. Um, and um, uh, it, it does take quite a bit more time typically. So the highest cure rates for nodular-based cell carcinoma, off-label treatment, done more often in, in Europe, uh, but uh, I've done a fair amount of this where I combine it with curatage. The cure rates are less, 71 to 76%. Again, a good correlation with the level of uh, inflammation. And uh, really, it's another uh, modality you can use uh, to treat patients. Say, for example, you get a uh, report back, you've, you've excised a basal cell carcinoma on somebody, and the pathologist's margins are clear for the deep tumor, but there's small areas of superficial involvement. Well, you could consider doing that, particularly in the cosmetic sensitive area of cleaning up the margins like we talked about doing for lentigo maligna. So as an adjunctive, uh, it may be, uh, may be helpful. Um, so pretty good for superficial basal cell carcinoma, not bad for squamous cell in situ, uh, you get pretty good cosmetic uh, results typically, and you can use it on widespread tumors. The areas that I like to use it the best, uh, the most common are the chest, the shoulders, and the lower legs of women that have, I call them golf lady legs, that may be sexist, but those are the type of patients that I see it, active golfers or tennis, that they get lots of these superficial squames in situ and superficial basal cells on their, on their lower legs. The other patients are, in my practice are fried farmers or cooked Caucasians. So there have been a few reports of injunoma butate, which is Picato, uh, for the treatment of superficial basal cell carcinoma, but only, uh, only small uh, studies. Uh, they're coming out with a newer uh, Picato II or, or some of Picato that it may be more effective. Uh, just in a small study, um, they had uh, good clinical and histologic clearance. Um, the uh, next thing we'll talk about is interlesional therapy. And interlesional therapy is a good medical treatment for a variety of skin cancers, but in my practice, uh, I use it mainly for keratoacanthomas. Uh, there have been a number of studies of treating other squames and basal cell carcinoma with interferon alpha, but uh, interlesional therapy for these big uh, KAs that develop, especially in my practice, seems like on the legs of women. And you know if you're going to do any kind of surgery there, you're going to do EDNC, you're going to excision, you're, you're, you're looking for trouble and slow healing. And so this is where I found it most useful in a variety of uh, reports for methotrexate, anywhere from 60 to 90 percent, 5-FU, higher percent, in small studies. Um, and interferon is most effective, uh, uh, I think, for a basal cell carcinoma. The other ones, methotrexate and 5-FU, really don't work that well uh, for uh, basal cell carcinoma. This was a good review uh, article um, by Kirby talking about this use for uh, non-melanoma skin cancer and, again, uh, using the perilesional and intralesional uh, treatment for skin cancers, primarily um, with uh, carried away canthoma. So if you're going to do this, say in a keratoacanthoma on somebody, you need to, first of all, 
review all the treatment options with the patient before you do it, because that's, there's no, that's not an on-label study. And uh, you need to document it very carefully. If it's a classical one with a commit quickly and domed, crusted center, and you're not going to biopsy it, then you need to document it with photographs, because uh, otherwise uh, you, you won't have a leg to stand on. And also, you may have trouble with billing, because sometimes the review center, well, how do you know that what we're treating? So we just take good photographs. Um, sometimes they use a little local anesthesia because it does sting, especially 5-FU stings when you inject it. And you may have some leakage through the central crust, but that's not really a problem. And you want to use a good lure lock syringe and some eye protection. You don't want to get any of this in your, in your uh, eyes or face when you're, when you're doing the injection. The technique overall is what you're all familiar with, is how you would inject a hypertrophic scar or uh, keloid. So you want to inject it within the lesion. Um, so those that are smaller than a centimeter can just do a well-placed needle in it and to the edges. Larger ones, you may have to do multiple injections, both around the, going around, the, let's say, four quadrants and a little bit underneath the base of it. And again, as I mentioned, it's analogous to treating interlesional um, um, keloids. So you may get some crusting and necrosis in about seven to 10 days, and it's okay for them to gently debride that. And I'll typically have them come back in about uh, three weeks, two to three weeks, and then uh, re-inject it if it's resolving. If it's not responded, then I typically would change from, say, uh, 5-FU to uh, a methotrexate. And this is, again, some of the regimens that's, uh, that have been used and described for this and in, in the kind of clearance that you might, might expect. So it's been very good in our hands for select patients. We don't do it routinely. Um, but certainly in those patients, it may be useful. And these, some of these patients that, again, start popping up with them right or left, some of the BRAF inhibitors with, for treatment of melanoma, patients get multiple keratoacanthomas, they kind of keep uh, spotting, uh, popping up around. So best for keratoacanthoma, uh, you biopsy or get good photographs uh, if it's a, if a classical appearance. And I inject every few weeks, change if it's not uh, improving. Um, and you may want to consider a, a post-treatment biopsy to see that the lesion has resolved, and you have to have the patient committed to follow-up to let them know that you're doing this modality to try and avoid surgery. It's analogous to treatment of, that they use for bowel cancer. The drug is used intravenously for uh, bowel cancer occasionally. In fact, that's how it came about that 5-FU was used for the treatment of AK. As they had patients at the University of Wisconsin that were being treated for uh, bowel cancer with inter intravenous I 5-FU and some of their lesions started, uh, AK started disappearing and back in, within the 60s with very minimal data they got approved uh, for the use for AK. Some of the disadvantages of uh, medical treatment, uh, first of all it is um, advantages that it's less, uh, less invasive and you have more and more of my patients are medically fragile, have multiple medical problems on multiple medications and some of them are just tired of having any more surgery of any sort. Uh, it tends to be less painful overall. Sometimes you can get a very nice uh, cosmetic result. You can treat multiple lesions. That's very helpful, particularly on multiple squamous cell carcinomas that you see on the legs, in situ on the legs, chest, and other areas. And you treat some subclinical disease, particularly if you're treating with a, a micromod uh, or other modalities. And you can avoid uh, difficult or complex surgery in some of these, some of these patients. So what are the big disadvantages? Well, you really don't get any margin control. It's clearly not indicated for a squamous cell carcinoma, and the lack of long-term data really on recurrence for, uh, is really not that good for um, any of these patients. We just don't have long enough data. Surgery is still the gold standard, so you're gonna have to spend enough time to uh, uh, explain to the patients uh, the risks and benefit and document it carefully before you undertake uh, any of these treatment uh, for uh, non-melanoma skin cancer. So a couple of other things that we've read about or heard about uh, recently, or patients come to talk to you about, there was a study um, in, um, uh, that showed that really aspirin and both and NSAIDs seem to re-cut down the number of squamous cell carcinomas and uh, it may have the potential to prevent the development of new squamous cell carcinomas because we always have patients ask, well, what else can I do, doc? I've been using sunscreen and all this kind of stuff, but what else can you do? So that's something that uh, is, an, is something you can offer them to do. Uh, but a more recent uh, uh, article 
showed that um, a form of a B3 niacinamide really can significantly decrease the number of, uh, of uh, non-melanoma skin cancers in patients if, if they stay with it. It seems that it may somehow uh, induce their immune system. A uh, good article in the New England Journal of Medicine about this. So I have a handout uh, that is uh, handy to give patients that explain a little bit about it. Now the key thing is that this is just an adjunct. It doesn't replace sunscreen, doesn't replace the other things that they're doing, but it's something else they can do. Uh, and it's important that they get niacinamide, not niacin, because if they just get the idea, that's why we have that clear in your handout. They're just going to go get um, B3, the pharmacist or the, or the vitamin shop will just give them um, niacin, and they get a lot of flushing with that, and nobody likes that. So sometimes I find it easier for them to get it online or go to a trusted pharmacist uh, than have them, have them order for them. Now, you, this was touched on early on in our, earlier in our discussion about intermittent visimodegib or AirVig uh, for the treatment of Gorlin's patients. And uh, this is something that I have more, I've used this more in my practice than anything else because frankly I don't get huge numbers of those. I've only had a half a dozen um, metastatic uh, basal cell carcinomas in my entire career and it's not that often I get those um, what they call locally advanced or inoperable basal cells. You get them once in a while, but not so often anymore. People are a little bit more aware of it, and we tend to do most surgery on them a little bit easier. But Scott Dinart uh, had this article we talked about, uh, an effective way to overcome adverse effects and compliance, and what I've done in my practice, I have them do it a week a month. Now, it is off-label, uh, but you need to let them know about that. But in this group, it seems to work extremely well. So, um, um, it's continuous treatment is only uh, FDA approved. Um, it can be used as a pre-surgical uh, adjuvant and, uh, and intermittent. Uh, and also, this was a question that didn't show up on their, on their thing. I don't know what's going on with your system back there, but we're backing up here a little bit. Um, it may reduce the jaw cyst on the patients with uh, uh, Gorlin syndrome. It's best in my practice to use it as intermittent. You can uh, use it as a pre-surgical adjuvant to shrink things down, as doctor talked about this morning, and then excise it. Uh, but it's only approved use is continuous, continuous use. So again, that's something you need to be aware about. Some of the disadvantages of it that it really does not cure in my, I think it suppresses it, it suppresses it to a greater degree. And some of them stay away for a long, long time. Uh, the, the, patient, the thing that patients complain about the most though are the muscle cramps, the abnormal taste, uh, the hair loss, um, and uh, sometimes the weight loss. It is clearly teratogenic and embryotoxic. Uh, very expensive, but the company is pretty good about getting it to the patients that need it. So they do have a good program. Um, uh, basal cell nevus or Gorlin syndrome is not approved, FDA indication, uh, but it is one that I use off-label. Uh, and it's really hard to stay on the drug uh, forever. So that, those are some of the disadvantages. So now we do have a question here, okay? All are true of the following except. Not working, there we go. Okay, correct answer is C. Um, um, is not really that, you don't typically use that, um, um, well, I don't know what's going on there. You can combine it with 5-FU. I don't, as one, that was, uh, one of the speakers talked this morning about the mechanism of a Mikramod, you don't want to combine it with topical steroids because it blocks the, blocks, the, blocks the effect of it. Okay. Okay, everybody got that right. Almost everybody got it right. Okay. High risk factor for squamous cell carcinoma include all but. Correct. 
Um, really, just EDNC itself does not make it a high risk, uh, could not have been treated aggressively or just maybe the margins of it. So it doesn't make it high risk unless it recurs uh, a second time after some other modality. How about uh, sentinel lymph node for squamous cell carcinoma? everybody got that right. Uh, it is useful for uh, uh, maybe more valuable than melanoma because you, once you find if it is sentinel, you can give them x-ray therapy afterwards and it very, is clearly useful uh, for staging the patient. Okay, retinoids for multiple squamous cell carcinoma, all but one of the following statements are true. does not uh, cure the squamous cell carcinoma. It's clearly just a suppressive, uh, suppressive drug. All right, capsidabine. Uh, we covered this earlier, so everybody's going to get this correct. all got it right. So it is a prodrug of 5-FU, converted to 5-FU in the body, and may cause nausea and renal impairment, um, um, and it is, uh, uh, is useful for the transplant patients. Uh, Sedixumab, all true but... It uh, really is, um, uh, is widely, is not really widely used. We have small studies uh, of this drug, uh, and it is, uh, it is similar to erotinibib, which is uh, all these things with the AB on it is, is an antibody or antibody blocker. So uh, how about cyclic PDT and uh, uh, organ transplant patients? Okay, everybody, almost, almost everybody got that right. So it, uh, it does lose its prophylactic benefit when you stop, as we saw in that diagram. Um, and I like it for, for large treatment areas, and uh, it does decrease the number of new squamous cell carcinomas. So uh, red light, uh, that we talked about briefly in the uh, new form of, uh, of uh, ALA, the amylose that uh, BioFrontera has. Uh, it is the best light source for this uh, form of PDT, but actually uh, it, it does not have a particular advantage over it. So you can use red light uh, or blue light. The blue light is a, for the other form of ALA. PDT is uh, uh, probably as good. Uh, the uh, intensity of the uh, red light uh, is uh, not quite the same in a, in a smaller field area. So there are advantages of both light sources. Mycomod for base cell carcinoma, all are true, but. Correct. All right, uh, interlesional 5-FU is most useful for. Everybody, almost everybody got that right, and that's what uh, we use it primarily in our practice is uh, for keratoacanthoma. We also use methotrexate for that. Uh, medical treatment for non-melanoma skin cancer include all the following except... Almost everybody got that right. The calcineurin inhibitors are the, are the drugs that we use for, for eczema, um, uh, protopic, and elodil. So NSAIDs and niacinamide, which statement is not correct? 
Okay, almost everybody got that right. Uh, Vismodejad approved for which of the following? It's only approved for continuous use. The other uses of Vismodejib are off-label. Okay. The overall performance of the speaker. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? Okay, happy to have a few minutes now to answer uh, um, uh, some questions. The first one, is Aldera effective in immunosuppressed uh, HIV or post-transplant patient? It is, but doesn't seem as effective. And uh, um, maybe Dr. Uh, Rosen would want to comment on that. Yeah, absolutely. It's used in Europe routinely as a prophylaxis for transplant patients. Not just as a treatment, but a prophylaxis on the extremities and stomach and throat parts of the face to prevent HKD from all the stuff that just makes you sick. But yes, it's not quite as effective, but it does work. Yes. Um, if you suspect node involvement, what's your next step? Do you order testing? I would prefer typically uh, to uh, most of the ones we're seeing that would be a head and neck or oncologic surgeon um, and for their, for their evaluation. Sometimes they'll do a, um, MRI or ultrasound and then maybe do a needle biopsy or whatever. Uh, so I think it is uh, important to, to do that as again, very important to document uh, the, if you check for nodes uh, on these squame patients, especially those that the higher risk that we talked about. Uh, when a patient's had a transplant, has had many squamous cell carcinoma, do you, do you refer to an oncologist at any time? Yes, we tend to. First of all, I have work with the transplant doctor first, and one of the things we would talk about is see if they can, uh, they can tweak the, uh, uh, their immunosuppressive drugs. The second thing we would consider uh, seeing if we could uh, uh, put them on, uh, if they're really galloping number of squames, uh, put them on a retinoid. Uh, for those other drugs, uh, cetictumab, uh, I would, would work with a, I don't prescribe that myself, I'd work with a medical oncologist on that. I have a recent past showing basaloid aggregates approaching cutaneous nerve but not diagnostic for perineural invasions uh, with margins free of original baso. Would you refer for x-ray therapy? Well, it would depend upon how old the patient was and what the location was, but I would certainly uh, certainly consider doing that uh, because uh, it's not as nasty as it with a squamous cell carcinoma, but you might want to do that, particularly if it was an area where progression of that nerve uh, could be a real problem if it was close to the orbit or something like that. So I think it's reasonable. Uh, how frequently are lab monitoring for retinoid transplant patients? Well, I get a baseline, and then I do after they've been on the drug for a few weeks, and then I would follow them just about like you do for uh, uh, for your isotretinoin and your Accutane patients. And uh, if, if they don't have really, uh, you know, their lipids are stable and so forth, I, I cut back on that, but just as you would uh, for, uh, um, for uh, isotretinoin patients. Do you have experience and thoughts on red light versus blue light treatment of actinic damage? Um, no, but there are some nice studies in Europe about the effectiveness of red light and the, and the red light in combination with this nanoemulsion uh, uh, PDT was showing pretty nice improvement in, in photo aging. So I do not have it, uh, experience with it. There was the commercial light that the uh, Omnilux light that was, uh, is, I don't know if it's marketed anymore, but that was a primary use for that. So I think it's something to think about. But I don't, personally don't have any uh, uh, experience with that per se. Uh, let's see, a uh, patient with multiple AKs, SCC presenting like an immunosuppressed patient, but no known cause of immunosuppression. You know, I see this sometimes in elderly patient 
where they've had so much sun damage that basically they've, they've fried their cutaneous immune system. They've gotten uh, rid of a lot of Langerhans cells and they start getting them. I would, I would keep a close eye on them, work out for the past that they might have some um, uh, underlying uh, uh, malignancy or some other reason to be immunosuppressed. You know, think of things such as HIV, things of that nature, but uh, um, I think you just need to watch it carefully. I do see some of those patients. I see some patients sometimes will get a KA pop up right where they had an, they get out of the hospital and where they had their IV and a KA will pop up there. And of course, if they're getting multiple KAs, uh, you need to, to think that they might um, you know, have the congenital syndrome with a, a bowel cancer and, and that type of thing. Um, is it worthwhile treating an octogenarian a patient with acetretin? Well, again, I think it would be depending upon their overall health and how much they have. Again, you'd want to titrate the dose to a small level, but uh, basically I, I look at over 60, even, you know, I start to look at patients more and what their biologic age is versus their um, chronologic age, because I think there's such a huge variance on what lifestyle they had, the amount of sun that they've had, what their genetics are. So I don't have any reason I already particularly would not do that. Ted, what do you think? psoriasis for the first time, and she was incredibly young in terms of her involvement in the community. She was head of a couple of volunteer organizations. Her, she was all there in terms of her cognitive ability. She was driving. She didn't even have a cataract, and not a single person she saw in Chicago would give her anything other than pound jars of triamcinolone. And it was a crying shame to watch a vibrant 80-year-old become a hermit, a recluse, and withdraw from activities she liked because of psoriasis. And I think the same thing is true of this. You know, 80-year-old is not old anymore. It's chronologically old, but a lot of 80-year-olds are very healthy or have chronic diseases that are entirely well-managed. And if they're that kind of person, I think they get the treatment they deserve. Uh, the next question, do you always recommend histologic proof of clearance after topical treatment of superficial basal cell or squamous in situ? Uh, no. I watch them carefully and I let the patients know that they need to have a closer follow-up than you would with ordinarily uh, treating, uh, treating with other, other modalities. I do try to get a biopsy ahead of time, though, to really have a, a good idea how, how thick the lesion is. Um, do you ever inject 5-FU in generalized area with multiple AKs as a field therapy? No, I've not, I've not done that, but I modify my approaches with 5-FU, uh, sometimes using uh, uh, PrEP treatments or uh, uh, having them uh, um, uh, use it with, perhaps with occlusion or other things, off-label approaches. Uh, the the go-to for eruptive keratoacanthomas, um, uh, if they're getting multiple ones, then I typically will try to uh, do the interlesional, interlesional treatments. Uh, the uh, uh, retinoids are helpful for that also. Uh, how much 5-FU do you inject in, in each uh, site? Um, typically, uh, the average one would be about 1cc. Uh, occasionally a little bit more, but 1cc. Uh, again, injecting uh, into, the lesion, uh, into the lesion carefully and then following up. Uh, what dosing schedule with 98% clearance of Ks and interlesional study? Uh, they were treating them every couple weeks in that study. And uh, if the patient is available to come back that time, that's an ideal one. Uh, some of my patients, especially some of these older ones, that uh, the ones I'm treating it on, it, it oftentimes is an issue getting them there. So I think ideally every two weeks. Uh, a large Ka in the chest of a woman. Uh, mostly removed with shave biopsy, elected to treat with interlesion of 5-FU. Uh, when you remove the bulk of it, you may only have to do it once, maybe even twice at the most in my experience. Um, so uh, uh, that's typically what I would do. And sometimes, frankly, just that level of treatment is all you have to do. And if you watch them, sometimes they'll resolve. And sometimes it doesn't take too much to get rid of some of these KAs. How is Gorlin syndrome diagnosed? Well, there's a number of things that make up the syndrome. Uh, they can have pitted palms. They'll have sometimes wide uh, space canthi. They may have jaw cysts. 
multiple base cell carcinomas. They can have some calcification of the Falk cerebri. Uh, there are a whole host of, of things that they can have. Uh, it's interesting how this was determined. It was Dr. Gorlin was a, was a dentist or oral surgeon at the University of Minnesota, and he was seeing these patients with jaw cysts and the skin cancers, and then uh, Bob Goltz was the head of dermatology at the time, and so uh, at one time I think it was called the Goltz-Gorlin syndrome or whatever. Uh, Nevoid based cell carcinoma is the other term for it. Um, when you decide to start patients with, with the Gorlins uh, on visnodegib, really if, it, if you're getting to the point where you're taking them off multiple ones every, every few months and you're basically, you can't even keep up with it without uh, doing a lot more aggressive therapy. So, or you're starting to see that, that patients are having recurrent lesions, they're starting to get other nasty ones. And the last one I put on was one that, that uh, we'd been taking them off routinely every four months or so. And then she had one that recurred and it kind of grew, grew down by the ear canal. And that was the one that, the last one that put it on. So typically it's not just your ordinary Gorlin's patient unless they start accelerating the number of them uh, that they're getting uh, or they start getting not only the small superficial ones, but they start getting ones that are in nasty locations near the, like the mediocanthus and area like that. Uh, yes, you can have the access to, to uh, uh, my handout. Um, I'll arrange to, to have that available. Um, uh, yes, you can get it, get it for you. Still have it available. I think it's useful. Um, I didn't mean, I didn't mean, I, the patient letter said Dick should not be confused with um, niacinamide. Well, niacinamide is just the niacin form, and that's the one that, that, that uh, flushes. Um, patient with multiple uh, defers to how you should treat superficial basal squamous on the trunk. Do you recommend surgery because the gold standard? Um, well, I really like on that group to do curatage without desiccation to follow up with 5-AFU, and there's a lot of good studies that have shown that that approach is effective, and you get less in the way of hypertrophic scarring, and I know Ted has talked about this in the past, Dr. Regal and Abel Torres have talked about it. So that's a regimen that you can think about doing. They very seldom get any scarring. You just curate the area and then follow up with, uh, um, with uh, um, uh, Miquimod afterwards, and you, you wait till it's healed, and then you do it uh, for about three weeks afterwards. Ted, do you have another regimen for that? No. Um, but it really is helpful to do that. Uh, yes, uh, if I suspect lymph node involvement, I definitely would, uh, I don't usually order additional testing myself because I really would refer to a head and neck surgeon or an oncologic surgeon to work it up further. Um, I don't know of any um, known uh, interaction with uh, vitamin B3. Uh, there may be some, uh, but I'm not aware of it. Ted, are you? Never run into it. Okay, I want to thank you for your attention. I really appreciate you inviting me and enjoy the rest of the meeting. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs. Recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.